Hey, welcome to Grace. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. Uh, older kids, you're more than welcome to go with uh, Youth Pastor Gary. He's in the back, so he's going to take you guys out for the sermon if you'd like to go. Um, if your parents want you to stick around, that's certainly fine. Uh, but parents, that's available for children over the age of five, as uh, some of the content might be a bit sensitive. So kids, feel free to do that. Uh, the rest of you, feel free to grab your own Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're actually going to be in, in multiple Bible verses this morning, so a little bit of a Bible drill. If you don't have access to uh, your own text, there should be a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And of course, as always, the text will be on the screen. So uh, Matthew chapter 15 is where we're going to begin. And then we'll jump all over the place. Uh, we've been in the midst of a, a sermon series called Clouded, uh, breaking through the fog of sexuality. And this morning, uh, we come to our, our third sermon uh, in that series. So kids, uh, on your way out, go ahead and do that. Adults, find your Bibles, and let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here this morning, in particular as we look forward to sharing communion together, uh, to remembering what your um, precious Son has done for us and his perfect life, his life full of obedience, his sinless life uh, in our place, his, his substitutionary death, dying uh, the death that we deserved, uh, bearing your wrath uh, for us in our place, and then being raised to new life, overcoming death, overcoming the grave, overcoming the power of Satan uh, in his glorious resurrection, and offering us forgiveness of sins, new life, the opportunity to be a new creation, reconciliation with you, a new heart that desires to obey, obey you, and, and so much more. And so we anticipate sharing that this morning, and we anticipate also sharing in um, the broken word together. Uh, thank you that we can sit as people who submit to your word, because your word is from you. And you speak through your word to us. And so we place ourselves underneath it. And we ask that we would learn from it. And that our lives would be changed by it. In particular, Father, we have been delving into issues that are uh, very pertinent to every single one of us. Um, as, to, as it relates to our, our sexuality. Lord, you have created us, male and female, as sexual beings. And you have given us this good gift of sex in the context of marriage. And yet we as sinful people, Father, we, we distort it in all sorts of ways. And so help us to be willing to see what you have to say about it. Give us hearts that are um, open to repentance. Help us to feel the glorious forgiveness of our sins that we have when we come to place our faith in Christ and may our thoughts and our actions and our life uh, be in, in line with your word in every area of our life, in particular this one. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen, amen. So uh, if you're ever at the grocery store, which I imagine some of you at least are on occasion, in particular the, the bigger ones there in Champaign or up in Kankakee, um, when you're sitting there waiting to check out, maybe you have a person or two in front of you, um, it's easy to just kind of look around. You don't have much else to do. And uh, just a quick glance at the grocery store magazine rack, um, I think uh, you'll likely see references to uh, things like um, 99 sex tips or good sex or best sex or sex secrets or fill in the blank. And I actually went looking online for some of these magazines and for the titles, um, but I quickly realized that I couldn't show you them <laughs> because not many of them were very appropriate to show. Um, but just a, just a quick glance through the grocery store magazine rack, um, and we see that our culture is, uh, you could say, obsessed 
with sexuality and, and, and with sex, and particularly with what our culture says is good sex, right? The best sex. And our culture defines good sex as sex that is physically exciting or, or for, for fulfilling, satisfying, maybe exciting, right? And then by default, our society and our culture says, well, well bad sex then is, is the opposite of that. It's, it's less than that. It's not exciting or fulfilling or, or stimulating or, or anything like that. And that is how our culture defines both, both good sex and bad sex. The question that I want to pose to us this morning is not so much what our culture calls good and bad sex, but what does God call good sex? And what does, what does God call bad sex? In particular, that second question is really where, where we're going to focus this morning. What does God call bad sex? So if you're taking notes, uh, a couple questions. Uh, our sermon is basically going to focus around asking and answering two questions. And the first question is this. What does God call bad sex? Uh, is there any kind of sexual activity that God calls bad or unrighteous or, or unholy or unhealthy, sinful? And then the second question is this. Well, if God does call particular acts bad, wrong, sinful, not, not according to his grand design, well then, what does he have to say about bad sex? Does he elaborate on those who participate in those kind of activities? Well, he does. And so two questions kind of frame our sermon this morning. What does God call bad sex? And then secondly, what does he have to say about it, right? So let's jump into question, question number one. What does God call bad sex? What kind of activities would he deem to be wrong, not within his design, sinful, I want to answer this question in two ways, because I think the Bible answers this question in in two ways, right? So the question is, what does God call bad sex? First of all, the Bible answers this question generally, right? Generally speaking. And then second of all, the Bible actually answers this question specifically. And so there's a general answer to the question, and there's a specific answer to the question. And I want to first look at the general answer. In the New Testament, in particular, when you are reading through it, you may come across two or three terms, and uh, those terms are all from the Greek word, which is pornea. When the New Testament speaks of sexual sin or bad sex, the underlying Greek word is this word, you'll see it on the screen, uh, pornea. Now, does that sound like uh, any English word to you? It does, doesn't it? And that is exactly right. That's where we get our word porn from, is this Greek word pornea, or porneia, depending upon how good your Greek is, right? Now, when you read through the Bible, uh, this, this word is typically translated uh, one of two ways. There may be some other translations, but most generally speaking, this word is translated a couple different ways, and you should see them on the screen. First of all, when you're reading your New Testament, and you see the, the word Sex, sexual immorality, the, the NIV, which is what I, I usually preach from, that's how it translates this Greek word pornea as, as sexual immorality. You may be more familiar with maybe an older word, which is fornication. The New American Standard, uh, the Old King James and the New King James translates this Greek word pornea as, as fornication. And so this word, when you look at it and do some study, what you'll find out is that the word describes any, any kind of sexual activity 
outside the bounds of covenant marriage. So it's a a general term. It's a catch-all kind of a phrase. And multiple kind of activities in the New Testament are used and described as pornea, sexual immorality or fornication. But basically it describes any kind of sexual activity outside the marriage covenant, with sex being defined simply as, as genital contact leading to arousal and climax. And so this is, first of all, how the Bible talks about bad sex. So it says, generally, it's, it's sexual immorality, it's, it's, it's fornication. And what's interesting is that it's a broad term. It's, in, it's inclusive. That is, it's a catch-all phrase. It's used to describe multiple kind of activities. Now, growing up, um, I don't know if you have one of these in your house. I think probably most households have one of these, but it's called a, dr- a junk drawer, right? It's a drawer or maybe two that just miscellaneous things maybe go in this drawer, right? Um, we had one growing up. Actually, we had two. So we had uh, these two little drawers that were kind of in the, in, the, in the kitchen, and they were junk drawers, right? And so we put pens and pencils and papers and just all sorts of things that really don't have a place well, they go in the junk drawer, and we had two of them. And it would always frustrate my mom when we would put things in the junk drawer that supposedly weren't on the junk drawer list, right? My mom, in her mind, had a list. And if you're smiling, you probably have one too, right? You know what's supposed to go in the junk drawer. Certain things are, and certain things aren't. <clears throat> but for a kid, it's kind of confusing, because when you hear your parents say, well, that's the junk drawer, well, what does that mean to a, a 12-year-old boy? It means that what goes in there? Anything, right? Anything. It's a junk drawer. There's really not a specific list. And so we would um, oftentimes put just various random things in my mom's junk drawer. And she would say, why are you putting that in the junk drawer? And I'd say, because it's junk. And it's supposed to go in the junk drawer. There's no other place for it, right? Um, so we all get this idea, this concept, right? That's what a junk drawer is. It just it, it, it can describe multiple kind of things that go in there. Well, Well, this Greek term, this Greek term, term pornea, it's, it's God's junk drawer term, okay? It's, it's God's term that he uses in the New Testament for all sorts of sexual sin. And so when the Bible talks about oftentimes in the New Testament, it uses this word, sexual immorality, fornication. It can describe all sorts of activities. It's a, it's a, it's a broad term. And the reason why I think God in his wisdom oftentimes uses this term to to, to talk about sexual sin is because as human beings, as fallen human beings throughout the centuries, we come up with all sorts of new ways to sin, don't we? I mean, we can come up with all sorts of ways to sin, and the same is true in the realm of sexuality. We can come up with all sorts of new ways to, to sin sexually, and so I think God in his wisdom most of the time, when he talks about sexual sin, he uses this, this general term to cover all sorts of activities, right, outside of the bonds of covenant marriage. And so, first of all, when God describes bad sex, he, he describes it generally speaking. He says it's, it's sexual immorality, it's, it's fornication, it's, it's anything any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. He uses this junk drawer term. So he speaks generally about it, but the good news is that he also speaks specifically about it. So he doesn't just say, avoid sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. He goes to the trouble, both in the Old and New Testaments, to give us a non-exhaustive list, 
And I want to emphasize that. Because when the Bible talks about sexual sin, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I don't believe the list that we get that I'm going to show you in just a bit, I don't believe it's exhaustive, right? When God says avoid sexual immorality or fornication, it covers everything outside of the bonds of marriage. But God in his grace says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to specify some things that actually go in the, in the junk drawer, right? So unlike my mom, who would, who would not give us a list, God gives us a list, right? He says, here's, here's a, a non-exhaustive list of some things that, that go in this junk drawer, right, of porneia. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a slide up behind you that has lots of references, um, you can jot them down if you want. Better yet, if you're really interested in getting these references, email me, let me know. I can, I can get you a hard copy or I can send it via email. But, uh, and this, is, by the way, is a non-exhaustive uh, uh, reference list. And so for each of these sins that both the Bible speaks of in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is not all of the verses that talk about it. These are just the big ones, right? The ones that I wanted to share with you. And so we're, just, we're not going to look at any of these verses, but I, I want us to see that God not only gives us a junk drawer term, but he actually specifies some things, right? He tells us these are things that are not in line with his grand design of sex and sexuality. Uh, <clears throat> number one, premarital sex. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can look that up. We've talked about that before. So he says, listen, Sexual activity before marriage is not in your best interest. It's not how I've designed it to be. And ultimately, it will be hurtful and harmful to you. Uh, Number two, incest. If you're reading through the Bible, in particular uh, Leviticus 18, you can kind of uh, get your head spinning a little bit about all the things that God prohibits. But God prohibits, as our country does, right, sexual activity with a close relative. God knows what he's talking about. Now, if you happen to be from uh, Arkansas, right, or maybe West Virginia, that doesn't apply to you as much, right? Uh, That's a joke, by the way. It does apply to them. Just a little stab, right? Uh, Incest. Number three, adultery. What is adultery? Well, it's, it's, of course, it's having a, a sexual relationship with somebody other than your spouse. Leviticus, Exodus, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5, and on and on and on, right? Uh, number four, homosexuality. We see uh, the references there. Uh, we're actually going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in the weeks to come. Uh, number five, let's keep moving. Bestiality. We don't talk about that much, but that's uh, having intercourse with an animal. God says, that's not how I designed it to be. I think we would all say, duh, right? Okay, uh, next one, prostitution. That's, that's sex for sale. God says, listen, this gift of sex is not something to be sold and bartered like it's, um, like it's, uh, like it's a, a product, right? Next, rape, which is, of course, uh, sex by force. He says, this is not how I intended it to be either. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, God says orgies, right? Simultaneous sex with multiple partners. He says, that's not how I designed it to be. And so here are eight things, and we can move past the list, that God specifies. He says these things, these kind of activities are, 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 are in the junk drawer, right? They're to be, uh, to be avoided. They're sexual sin. So here's our first question, right? We've, we've asked it, and hopefully we've answered it. What does God call bad sex? Well, generally, he calls it sexual immorality. He calls it fornication. Specifically, we have this non-exhaustive list of eight things. But for the rest of our time, I want to focus our attention on the second question. And it's a, it's a fascinating study that I was able to, to do this week. The first question is, what does God call bad sex? And the second question is this, what does God say about it? What does God say about sexual sin, about sexual immorality? Well, he has quite a bit 
to say about it. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down six things, uh, six bullet points, if you will, six bold truths that the Bible says about bad sex. And, and, and basically, when you look at what this term, this, this term pornea, right, that we talked about earlier, it's used in the New Testament, by my count, some 32 times. So 32 times as you're reading through the New Testament, you'll come across this term, sexual immorality. And when you read those 32 verses and the context that they're in, you'll quickly discover that God cares a lot about sexuality. And he cares a lot about sex. And he has things to say about bad sex. And so six things, six truths about bad sex from the verses that we get using this reference, pornea. So number one, the first thing that we see is about bad sex is that its source is our sinful nature. That is, it answers the question, why do we do it? Where does it come from? Its source, the Bible says, is our own fallen, broken, needing redemption nature. Like all sin, like all sin, we engage in sexual sin because we're sinful by nature. We're broken people. It's symptomatic of something deeper, right? A spiritual brokenness. God Humanity without God's gracious intervention in our life, the Bible says, follows our own sinful nature, our own sinful desires, our own sinful passions. And as we do that in the realm of sexuality, we break his design. We, we misuse this wonderful gift that he's given us. So a couple places, Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 1, Jesus talks about this about how sexual immoralities is from our fallen nature. I'm just going to read one reference. It's there in uh, Matthew 15. Jesus says, For out of the heart, notice that, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And there's a whole list. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality. There's our term right there, right? Theft, false testimony, and slander. So Jesus identifies the source of our sexual sin. It's from our hearts. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, you'll see it on the screen, verse 19, agrees. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And what does he begin with? He begins with our term, pornea, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And he continues on. And so both Paul and Jesus agree. Why do we do this? Where does it come from? Well, it's, it's a sign inward. It points inward. It's not just a bad choice. It's not just a, a hang-up, right? It's not just something we do because we're human beings. No, it, it points something out, that we're sinners who need saving. More on that in a bit. So the source of sexual sin is us. It's our sinful nature. Secondly, what does God say about bad sex? Well, not only does it come from our sinful nature, but the world as a whole, that is, the world around us, encourages it. It encourages sexual sin. And this logically makes sense, right? Because if, if, if as individuals we are, we are broken sexually, individually, right, and we follow our own pathways, well, then it would make sense that collectively humanity as a whole does the same thing and encourages and even affirms and even boasts in what God says is sexual sin. It's, it's not within his design. Turn with me if you have your Bibles open or look on the screen to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to, to hear how Paul describes the world's and the world's system, how it 
thinks about and practices sexuality. Verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles is Paul's term for unbelievers, right? In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Notice the culmination in verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So Paul says, listen, the the world system as a whole encourages and affirms sexual sin. Now, I want to read you a quote from a historian in the first century, which is when this part of the Bible was written. The the Roman historian Cicero agrees with Paul's assessment of the world and the culture around him in that day. He, He writes this, If there is anyone who thinks that youth, that is, young people, if, if there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, that is, sexual immorality, that they should abstain from sexual immorality, his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when this was, for, excuse me, for when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? So in the first century, Cicero says, yes, Paul, you're right. Sexual immorality is the norm. And I'm afraid that the same could be said of our culture today. Uh, What Paul says in the first century historian Cicero says, I think our culture says as well. I want to share with you an interesting uh, statistic here. Uh, The Gallup poll, you may uh, have heard of this. It's a secular poll, well-known poll. 2013 Gallup Hold uh, people from the ages of 18 to 34, so a kind of a young um, group, a demographic there, right? And they polled uh, people ages 18 to 34, and they asked them certain uh, what their views were on certain sexual activities. And here's here's just a few of the stats: uh, 49%, so almost half of them approved of the use of pornography. So one out of two said yes, that's morally okay. said sex before marriage is morally okay. 74% said homosexual uh, sexual activity is okay. And surprisingly, the largest largest group in the study that actually jumped in their approval ratings of these things was not the young people. It was those 55 and up. So you may think, oh, that's just the young people that they think that. Well, no. Gallup says even those 55 and up have an increasing idea that sexual sin is not sexual sin. And so I think an application for us here and today is simply this. What we see from what Paul says is that we as the church, as God's people, we have to ask ourselves, from whom are we taking our cues on sexuality? Who defines sexuality? Who says what's right and what is wrong for us as Christians, from those who claim to follow Christ and be under the authority of, of God's word? Who gets to define right and wrong? Does our culture, do, do our peers get to? Does, does the media get to? Or does God get to? I think God gets to for those of us who are believers, right? And yet Peter Sprigg, he's a, he's a senior fellow for uh, the Family Research Council, and this is what he says. This is his assessment of our Christian culture 
today, quote, Christians are perhaps more influenced by the culture than they are by the teaching of the scripture or of the church. Peter Spriggs says, somebody with authority and, and a sense of what's going on. And so my prayer for us is that this is not the case for Grace Bible Church, that we take our cues on sexuality, not from the world, but from God and from scriptures. So we've seen a couple things, right? A couple things. Bad sex, it's, it's sourced in, in our sinful nature. The world around us encourages and affirms it. Number three, the Bible teaches that the lost, those who are not Christians, are characterized by it. It's one of the many sins that the Bible says characterizes those who are not believers. And as with any sin, persistent, willful, and rebellious practice of sexual sin reveals a rejection of Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, resulting in judgment. just want to read one scripture along these lines. There are many on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. These are, these are serious words. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's our word, pornea, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet there's good news, verse 11. And that is what some of you were, he says to the Corinthians. But, but you were washed of your sin. You were sanctified, he says, that is, set apart for God. You were justified, that is, you were declared righteous in the sight of a holy God by your faith in Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So what does this mean? It means that, among other things, God takes sexual sin seriously, as he does all sin, and we should too. And it's symptomatic. It's a huge red flag that if we are practicing open, sinful, sexual sin, disregarding what what God says, it may be a big red flag that God is waving in our face saying, you need to check your spiritual state. You need to see who your Savior really is. So we've seen three things. Now we move on to number four. What does God say about bad sex? Number four He says that those defiantly practicing it in the church are subject to discipline. Now, we see this in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a lot there. There, Paul gives instructions to a church, and the church is dealing with a man who is unwilling to give up an incestuous relationship. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to read the tail end of what Paul says to do as he instructs the church how to handle this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. He says, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Now he's going to clarify what he meant. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So he doesn't mean those who are, don't claim to be Christians. He's going to further clarify in verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral. There's our word again. Or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Verse 13, 
God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So he takes this whole chapter and he says, this is how you're supposed to deal with blatant, flagrant, rebellious, unrepentant sexual sin in the church. And there's a process there, but it ultimately culminates in the person not having fellowship in the church. And so God takes it seriously in the church. Not only does God take it seriously, but he wants us to take it seriously as well. Number five, what does God say about bad sex? Number five, he says, Christians, those who claim to be followers of Christ, brothers or sisters, as Paul said, he says that they are to refrain. We are to refrain from it. Now this is when you look at the use of this this term, pornea, in the New Testament. It's vastly the most used reference in this category. That is, when God talks about sexual sin, most of the time, actually 12 times out of 32, he's telling the church, avoid it. So most of the times, the thrust of the teaching is for Christians to avoid it. I'm just going to look at two passages just to give you a flavor of what he's talking about. Back to familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at it last week and we'll look at it this week. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. Notice what Paul says. Flee from sexual immorality. So what is the Christian, what is our relationship to be with sexual sin? Flee, run, right? That's what he says. Flee from it. And then he gives some reasons. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. body. Reason number one. Reason number two, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Reason number two. Reason number three, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Honor, glorify, your translation may say, Honor God with your bodies. So here, he says, flee from it, right? If you see sexual sin, don't run towards it. Run away from it. Our response is to run like crazy. I want to share a brief story with you. Um, uh, Several years ago, back when I was in seminary, uh, my grandparents owned a a lake house on Lake Corpus Christi, which which is where I'm from. And uh, I would, during spring break or maybe summer times, I would bring my friends down to the lake and we'd spend a nice week at, at my grandparents' lake house. And it, it was really a good time. One time I had a couple of my buddies uh, there and uh, we thought, you know, we're getting fat. All we're doing is, is, is eating and playing on the, on the lake and riding jet skis. So we need to go get some exercise, right? So we decided to go for a run. And so we decided to run along the lake. It'd be scenic and pretty. So here we are. We're getting our outfits on. We're jogging shoes and all that jazz. And we take off. And we start at a pretty uh, non-brisk pace. You know, it's almost like, a, almost like a walk, but a little bit more than that, right? We're just going along slowly. We want to exercise, but we really don't want to push it that much because it's vacation, right? So we're just kind of breaking a sweat, feel good about ourselves, right? And so we, we, we get a long ways off. We're talking and having a good time and kind of lost ourselves in the midst of it, and we kind of failed to realize that there was a nice thunderstorm brewing. And at some point, we started to hear the thunder, and we started to see the flashes, and we thought, maybe we should turn around, because we've been going in one direction away from the house for about 30 or 45 minutes, of course, at a, at a slow pace, right? And so we think, we're going to turn back around. To make a long story short, the storm came in, and it got closer, and the thunder got louder, and the lightning got brighter, and, and at some point... Um, this is my guess. At some point, there was a very, um, a very uh, bright flash, and it kind of 
blinded us just for a second, and we came to, and we said, did lightning just strike very close to us? And I think our answer was yes, and uh, it freaked us out. And so at that point, our very slow, turtle-like pace became a rabbit-like, a rabid, let's get home before we die kind of a run. And I don't remember to this day running so hard or so fast to get home uh, after that near lightning strike. And so um, we, we booked it with all that we had, right? We ran. You could say we, we fled. You could say we fled from that lightning. And Paul says, Christians, that's how we're supposed to relate to sexual sin. We flee from it. We don't casually walk away at a, at a slow pace. We run from it. The wrong question as it relates to the Christian in sexual sin is how far can I go? I was in youth ministry for a lot of years, and I can't tell you how many times I had students ask me this question. And I would say, you're asking the wrong question. The wrong question is, how far can I go? The right question is this, how far away can I run? That's the right question. It's not a matter of where's the line, it's a matter of where's God, and what does it look like to pursue holiness? Because if you're asking the question, how far can I go, you're looking to get very close to the line, and eventually you'll jump over it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Also, Paul tells us, Christians refrain from sexual immorality, starting in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. There's our term, avoid it. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Notice verse 8. It stands out to me. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but who? But God. But God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Church, this is a strong word for us that when we read in the Bible about sexual immorality and fornication, and when we look at the list that God specifies, that we dare not tinker with that, right? That, that we dare not say, well, that's just your opinion. That's, that's what our culture says. Well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion on this act. That's your opinion on that act. That, that's what you think, but that's your truth. It's not my truth. And what does Paul say? He says, listen, flee from sexual immorality, which because it covers everything outside of marriage, And he says, listen, and if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. And the same is true. You may not like what I'm saying. You may not like what I'm going to say in the weeks to come. But you're not rejecting me if I'm speaking what the Bible says. You're rejecting God and what he says about what's best for you and your sexuality. Number six, Christians need to repent. So if we're to refrain from it, then it follows that if and when we do fall into sexual sin, and we all do in one way, shape, or form, or another, we'll talk about that as we talk about lust next week. We all are in this category, even as Christians. And when we do, God calls us to repent. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Paul says to this church again in Corinth, I'm afraid that when I come again, 
So he wants to visit them. My God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not, what, repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul says, I'm going to visit you, and I want to visit you, and my fear is that when I come, I'm going to come and find out that there are Christians among you who have not repented of sexual sin, right? You've not agreed with what I'm saying, and I don't want that to happen. So let me humbly ask you today, is there any sexual sin in your life that needs repenting of? So two questions. What does God call bad sex? Well, we've, we've answered it. He calls it immorality, anything outside of marriage. Specifically, he, he lists lists and he names names. Secondly, what does God say about it? He says lots about it. It's, it's from our sinful nature. The world encourages that. The lost are characterized by it. If, if we in the church defiantly practice it, there are consequences. We're, we're supposed to refrain from it and repent from it as well. And so as we talk about repentance, it's a great time to prepare our hearts and our minds to share in communion together. And that's how we're going to end our service is, is by partaking in communion and by singing a song of repentance and, and calling us back to holiness. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 talks about our attitude when we prepare ourselves for the table. And he, and he, and he says this, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup, is what he says. And so, we're going to take a few minutes to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a couple verses of a song to prepare our hearts. And so, if you want to sing with us, sing with us. If you want to to sit and you want to pray and you want to repent, then do that. And after we sing a few verses, I'll invite you to come. If you're a believer today, we practice open communion. So if you, if you profess faith in Christ, if you profess that his blood and his body is, is sufficient for you, and you've placed your faith in Christ, then you're welcome to come and partake of the table. I'll, I'll invite you after singing a few verses to come. I'd invite you to, to form a couple lines and then stick around because we're going to finish the song when we're done. So church, let's, let's pray just for a moment. And then we'll start singing, and I'll invite you to have a time of examination. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.